Thank you, brother. I want to start by asking you to turn the table of contents of your Bible, if you would. We'll get to Habakkuk in a moment. So you'll see in the table of contents, uh, two divisions, right? Old Testament, New Testament. And within the Old Testament, though you maybe don't have the labels, there's, they're kind of organized by type of literature. Uh, so the first five books of the Bible, all written by Moses, the Pentateuch, a history of God's creation in Israel, but they're kind of based historically, what, what had God been doing from the beginning. And those kind of books go all the way up through Esther and maybe Job, very historical what is God doing to bring about his people and ultimately looking towards Christ? And then from Job or Psalms on to Song of Solomon, you have um, more poetical books. Uh, songs, Psalms, Proverbs, a different kind of literature. And then after that, you have the prophets. And typically we talk of two divisions in the prophets, major prophets and minor prophets. Major, because they're longer. <laughs> uh, that's it. They're not more important or anything. They're just longer. That usually takes you through Daniel. And then you have these minor prophets. And we're going to be preaching out of one of the minor prophets here for the next four Sundays, Habakkuk. So you see Habakkuk down there in the list. It's only three chapters long. Uh, and that's where we're going to be. So I wanted just to draw your attention to that. So turn, if you would, to Habakkuk. I missed it myself. All right, so Habakkuk. So let me, as you're turning there, it'll take a while. Uh, what's the Bible all about? Considered that? What is Scripture about? Now, of course, the easiest answer, the answer for all things is Jesus. That's true, actually. <laughs> The Bible is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. But sometimes I think we conceive the Bible just all about my personal salvation. It's just about what God has done to save me. And yes, that is a, a, a main theme, but it's not the theme. What's the theme of Scripture? The, the theme of Scripture is what is God doing in the world for his glory? That's it. That's the theme of Scripture. God in his glory and his plans and purposes and promises in this world, particularly focused on his people. So we're part of that much greater whole. I think sometimes we just conceive of it rather short-sightedly, just me. That's how we read the Bible. And yet there is you part of this much greater whole. And in that sense, we're very small. You can't even see us. The Bible is about God and his glory and what he's doing in the world. And as you read the Bible, if you can read it truly, our place in the Bible is often filled with bad things. God's story does end happily ever after. But along the way, there's dangers, toils, and snares. There's trouble. 
There's cliffhangers. There's plot twists. God is a God who loves to bring his people into the most awful places with no way out, no way up, no way down, no hope, but God. Again and again and again. And that's where Habakkuk finds himself. Trouble. Anger, frustration, sorrow. Verse 2, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? Don't you see what's going on in this world that you've made? Don't you see the state of your own people? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at what's wrong? Law is paralyzed. Don't you see it? How long? This is what's going on in the Bible time and time again. So I picked this book for two reasons. One, I was looking for something that would fit into four weeks. It's very spiritual. And the second criteria is what could be a book in Scripture that would speak to the trouble we see in our world and how much we're angry and discouraged and frustrated. And I landed on Habakkuk because that's what he's talking about. Now, Habakkuk is unique in all of the prophets. All of the other prophets are speaking to God's people about the discipline and promises that God promises to bring. So the prophet is more of a preacher speaking directly to God's people. But here, Habakkuk is speaking directly to God. And you see this dialogue between Habakkuk and God. It's unique. Which I think, I hope, I pray, will help instruct you and disciple you in how you can deal in this world and the trouble that you are sick of, frustrated, untroubled by. I think he's got lots to help you with there. I'm going to read one verse. This sermon is going to be just an overview, intro to the entirety, and then we'll take one chapter each week for the next three weeks. If you're reading with us in our Bible program that many of us are doing, you read Habakkuk uh, two weeks ago in one sitting. It's a simple book to read through. It just takes a a couple of minutes, and so if you missed it, you might want to do that. I'm going to read Habakkuk 2.4, chapter 2, verse 4. Behold... His soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Let me pray. Your word, O Lord, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And yet if we confess it, Lord, we sometimes neglect these smaller books. We pass them right over. And yet we know that every word that you've inspired is useful for correcting, rebuking, teaching, instructing, that we might be fully equipped. And so give us faith for this book. Incline our hearts towards it, that we might live in this world with joy in you to the end. In Jesus' name, amen. Habakkuk is also unique in that we know almost nothing about him. We know his name because the book gives it. You know that The big block heading at the top of the page, Habakkuk, isn't inspired. But in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, we see the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. So Habakkuk names himself here. The Holy Spirit inspired us, or him, to at least give us that much information about him. So we know his name. We know when he 
ministered. He, in his vision, in what he sees that is written down for us, uh, in the second half of chapter 1, God's answer in verses 5 through 11, God tells us that he's going to bring the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, as discipline on his people. So this was at the time that the Babylonians were conquering or becoming the world's power over Assyria. So we know about the date. Uh, and, and, and so uh, Habakkuk was about the time, uh, early or late 600, 610 B.C. Jerusalem was conquered by the Babylonians in 586. So that was before that. And so likely, if you wanted to find where this is in the historical books, you'd be reading the last few chapters of 2 Kings. Maybe the time of Josiah, down to Josiah's son, Jehoiakim, who was installed by Pharaoh Necho, who undid all of his father Josiah's reforms. And so Habakkuk is grieved that God's people in Judah have turned away from the great reforms of Josiah very quickly and have gone right back to idolatry and violence and oppression of the weak among them. So that's what's going on. Now, I, I found this little illustration. Grab that out if you would and, and do something for me. Just, you know, I, I think I've been here, I, ha- I know how long I've been here, five years, and I've never done anything like this. I'm usually not big on pictures or things up there. So uh, for all of you who have asked me for five years to do more stuff like this, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, now that should cause you to leave me alone for a bit. Fold it in half. All right. Uh, I wanted you to fold it in half. And if you really wanted to get fun, write an A here on the left margin and another A over here. And then a little bit in, write a B, and then another corresponding B on the other side, and then a C, and then a C, and then a D right in the middle. That's how this book is structured. The beginning section is parallel with the last bit. Just from the beginning is parallel with just in from the end. All the way towards the middle, and the middle section is chapter 2, about verse 4. That's the center of it. The book is written very intentionally. Uh, with, this, with this really neat structure. This is one of the reasons we love God's word. It's beautiful. And the words are not only true, and, and, and there, there are some really rich words, verses in this, but the structure itself is very intentional and thoughtful, poetical. It's beautiful in of itself. We love God's word for this. It grabs us. It should. All right, so um, in the first section... Chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, you have this complaint. If you're looking at this little chart, the top section just gives you the overview of it. But down here on the far left corner, or almost upper left, it says 1, 2, A. Complaint 1. You see that? 1, 2 through 4. This book begins with Habakkuk. Habakkuk I'm going to say it wrong several times. Habakkuk 1, 2 to 4 is, is the first bit. He is waiting for justice. If you go to the very end of the book or down in the lower right-hand corner, you have chapter 3, verses 1 to 16, God will bring justice on everything. 
See that? So, so it's relating. It's parallel. But the way the book is set up is Habakkuk will make a, Habakkuk will make a complaint. God will give an answer. So Habakkuk complains for justice. God says, I'm going to bring it. I'm going to raise up Babylon in verses 5 to 11, and they're going to discipline my people. Habakkuk's second complaint is in 112 to 21. Habakkuk says, what? I want justice, but not that. How can you bring a more evil nation to discipline your people who are evil? And God's answer is, the righteous will live by faith. Trust me. I know the end from the beginning. Trust me. I'll I'll discipline Babylon too. I'll, I'll bring discipline. I'll use corrupt kingdoms, but I don't endorse them. All nations are accountable to me. And ultimately, how do you live in this world? How do you live in this world of wickedness and evil and injustice? How do you live in this world when the church itself is corrupt? By faith. That's the answer. By faith. God in, the, in chapter 2, 6 through 20, announces five woes. Five woes on Babylon for their economic oppression, slave labor, awful leaders, and idolatry. It's as if Habakkuk is living in America. The book ends with a prayer from Habakkuk. A prayer of faith. God, do it. Focusing on God's greatness, his glory. And then the end, verses 17 to 19 of chapter 3 are an example, an expression of the fruit of faith. So the center heart of this book is faith. Living with faith in God as he deals with the world according to his means. And the fruit of that faith is, even if everything fails, God is my joy. That's it. That's the book in sum. So there's your little picture, kids. Commence the coloring. Look forward to seeing your Handiwork afterwards. So that's it. There's the, there's the book in sum. Let's, let's, let's hit on the few main things. As I said, the main thing is, what is God doing? How do we deal with God? How do we approach God in a world that is frustrating and unjust and disappointing? Well, Habakkuk begins with complaining. If you read the Bible at all, you know that God's people have a long and glorious history of complaining to God. And this kind of complaining is the godly kind. This isn't the grumbling. This isn't the whining. This is godly complaining. Look at his complaint in 1, 2 through 4. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? Isn't that a godly complaint? Don't you need to learn that prayer? God, how long? How long must I cry to, for help to you? God, how long? 
think we have become maybe a bit too spiritual for this kind of prayer? A bit too godly for this kind of prayer? We think godliness is equal to optimism and only lying to ourselves that everything is good and it's going to be good. It's like we live in a perpetual Lego movie. Everyone is happy. Isn't that something how the song goes there? Everything is awesome. Thank you, Becky. I knew I could count on you there. Instead, we cry, how long, God? Don't you see? Don't you care? Look at verse 3. Do you have the faith to pray this? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you, God, make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? When's the last time you've prayed anything close to that? Why not? Do we not live in a world that's just like that? Why don't we pray like this? Don't forget in 1 Timothy 2, godly men are urged, exhorted to pray for all in high position that we might have peace and we can go about worshiping God. What does that prayer look like? Maybe it looks like this. How long, O Lord? Why do you idly look? But here's the thing. Who is Habakkuk praying about here? Where is the violence, the iniquity, the wrong, the destruction, the strife and contention? It's in the church. It's within the God's people here. It's within Judah. He's concerned in this first complaint about the sin within the people of God. And so Habakkuk is complaining. So don't be too so spiritually blah. Jesus said that we're too serious for a wedding and yet too silly for a funeral. That was the complaint about him. Like we live in this ooey gooey middle ground where we can never weep and we can't really ever rejoice. It's like we're on spiritual Prozac. As Christians, we just have to maintain this middle ground. We can't get angry because that's not godly. And we really can't be really happy and dance like David. We got to maintain this spiritual equilibrium and act like everything's always good all the time where we need to learn to get angry for things that should make us angry. Justice. Do you care about justice? God's answer is justice. I'm bringing justice. Habakkuk's second complaint looks at God's holiness in verse 12. You're holy. You're eternal. I know we'll be okay. But how can you who are pure eyes than to see evil cannot look at wrong? How can you bring them to discipline us? God is utterly sovereign, in control of all things in this book. Habakkuk knows that everything that's happening is happening from the hand of God. 
There is no chance. There is no fate. All human free will submits itself to God's sovereign will. Future, the present, everything is happening at God's hand. God is doing it all. That's understood by Habakkuk. It's not questioned by Habakkuk. That's why God is complaining to Habakkuk. Or to, that's why Habakkuk is complaining to God. And so, why is God doing this? When is he going to act? You'll notice in Scripture, whenever God's people complain to him, God hardly ever answers the question that they're asking. God is always concerned to disciple his people and help them learn how to live in a world that's under his discipline until the coming of his son. He's always more focused on you and your godliness than in giving you the answer. That's always what God is doing. So how does God answer? I just want to draw your attention to a few central answers. And the most central is 2-4. The righteous shall live by faith. Keep that in mind. We'll go back to it. One answer is judgment is coming. In 6, 2, 6 to 20, woe. Verse 9, woe to him who gets evil gain. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a town and blood and founds it on iniquity. Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbor drink. Verse 19, woe to him who says to wooden, woe is God's curse upon the wicked. Judgment is coming is an answer. This is often a comfort for God's people in the Bible when they see wickedness happening inside God's people and in the world. God sees. He keeps a record. Nothing will go unpunished. We're taught to pray for it, aren't we? We're taught to pray for this justice. We're taught to take comfort in it. The Psalms are filled with prayers asking for God to deal justly with the wicked to smash their teeth and break their bones and rub their name out from under the sun. In fact, we're taught to take comfort that God's vengeance is coming. He will repay. So we don't have to. So that's one answer. A higher level answer is given in 2.14. I'm just drawing your attention to a few of the most memorable verses, the most glorious verses, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. All right, homeschool kids, public school kids, all of you are taught this. What percentage of the earth's surface is covered by water? Anybody? Two-thirds, three-quarters, a lot. Right? You've stood, I'm sure, at the edge of an ocean. Maybe you've flown over it, and all you see is water. The one concern for the Christian is that this world be filled with the glory of God, and in one sense it is, right? We, we sang it this morning. This creation is a mirror to us declaring the glory of God. Everything we see, negative 20 declares the glory of God. Everything is on this, creating this world to say to you, God is glorious. So the earth is filled with the glory of God. But what this means is, we want this earth to be like heaven. 
We want this earth to function justly and righteously and lovingly. We want everything to be set right. We want the law of God to dominate the world. We want Eden. We want Revelation 21 and 22 here. That's what it means when the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the water covers the sea. That's what we look forward to as believers, right? The day when heaven and earth are one in the new creation and everything is good. And what Habakkuk hears from God is it's coming. There will be a day when all of the wicked will be removed and righteousness will reign and there'll be no more death or sickness or dying or marriages falling apart or children dying young. No more wicked rulers, no more wicked laws, no more mask mandates, no more viruses. Just as water covers the sea, so the glory of God will cover the earth. It's coming. Wait for it. Another is 2.20. This is all unpacking what 2.4 means to live by faith. We need to know these things. 2.20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Be quiet. I asked Mandy if I could say shut up there, and she said don't do it. So I didn't. (laughs) Thank you, David. Right? Be still and know that I am God. Know me. Know my character. The, The Lord is in his holy temple. What is that saying? It means that he rules. There's no one like him. There's none that can check him. Look there and be quiet. Be still. And then at the end, the last three verses in chapter 3, 70 to 20, some of the most beloved verses, you probably have a poster with this on it somewhere in your house. Every Christian calendar has it. Probably like May when the flowers begin to bloom again. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. It's a song. It's a psalm. Habakkuk was likely involved in worship at the temple and likely it looked like involved in music. And he writes this last chapter as a prayer, but the beginning of the prayer in 3.1 has a musical annotation. It ends with a musical annotation. The last chapter is a psalm. It's a song. He sings. Though all of the agriculture be gone, though the financial industry crash, though there's no more cheese curds, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That's an example of somebody who gets 214, who gets 220, and who is trying by God's grace to live out 24, the righteous live by faith. So that's the answer to the problem, right? How do you live in this world? How do you deal? How do you live during a 
presidency under President Biden? How, how did you live under a president like Trump? How do you live with a governor like Governor Evers? How do you live in the workplace with the people you have to live with? By faith in God. Because his glory will cover the earth. He is in his holy temple. And so, though everything is not what I want it to be, God is my God. He is my salvation. And I will take joy in him. That's the book. That's it. Faith. Isn't that so simple? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. That's it. That's life. But you want more, don't you? You're not settled with that. You want more. You demand more. I want you to fix the circumstances, God. I want you to give me a different president, God. I, I want something more than God. And God will never give you more than him. He'll never do it until you're satisfied with him. And to be satisfied with him in 2-4 means to be satisfied with the righteousness that he's given you in Christ. And so that is the center heart of this book, Justification by Faith. We'll get into it in two weeks. So just very simply, the faith that God asks of you in a world that seems out of control, in a world that is often arrayed against his people and within the church when the church is no longer what it should be, is a faith that looks to Christ alone to be acceptable before God and believes that God has made you completely acceptable with him just because Jesus lived and died and that's it. And that's it. So in the New Testament, this verse is quoted in three places. The main one being Romans 1.17. That the only way to be acceptable to God is through faith in Jesus Christ. Because two things happen in connection to Christ. One, he takes all your sin Two, you get all of his righteousness. And that's the only way to live in this world. By looking at Jesus. Because only in connection with Jesus can he take all of your filth, all of the thoughts that go through your head that are shameful to you, all of the things that you spoke in anger, all of your heart deceits, all, all of it, all of your lusts, all of your greeds, right? all of your wishing that you had a better husband or a better wife, if only I could have somebody like that. Christ takes that all and then you get granted all the righteous, good, obedient work that he did all in his life. That becomes your record. And you believe God that that actually happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus lived and died and rose. That's what that verse means. Your sin deserves condemnation and it was condemned in Christ 
God requires of you a righteous life, a life of perfect obedience. And you have it from Christ. And notice the actual words here in verse 4. The righteous shall live by his faith. That is, this faith isn't only that which gets us initially to accept it by God like a ticket. This faith is that which you live in by every moment of every day. We live this. We don't just use it to get in. We live it from beginning to end. And you know it takes work, right? This faith. It's not easy. You have to exercise it. And what's the fruit of it? 3, 17 to 19. Joy in God, apart from circumstances. I know that's very kind of like Christian thing to say, right? I, my circumstances don't define me. I can live through them. I'll be okay. But don't forget how Habakkuk is speaking in this letter, please. He is crying out to God. He is complaining to God. He is questioning God. And God's answer is, God, doesn't remove the circumstances. It doesn't utterly change them. It just shows you that God is our God and he has saved us in his son and that's enough for joy. Even as we weep, even as we are sick of this, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That's it. Let's pray. Oh, Father, please, uh, we know that this faith that attaches itself to your Son is itself a gift from you. And so, God, would you use what we've just preached and what we've sung before and what we're about to do in this taking of your Lord's Supper, to build and strengthen and nourish our faith. It is often weak and small, and yet it is not mainly about our faith, but you, the object of it. And so, God, may we look to you, who is in his holy temple. May we look to you, who has worked salvation in his Son, and find joy and rejoicing, no matter if the earth gives way. And so, God, build our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. The charge is this. Uh, first, consider reading Habakkuk this week and focus on 2-4. Maybe memorize that and then make that your prayer for each other. So read the book, maybe memorize 2-4, and then in these difficult, darkening days, pray for your brothers and sisters by name, maybe in your neighborhood group. Go through the directory and just ask God to give us faith in him, that we might have joy in him. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.
God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord, and I love you.